I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to return to the Gospel of Matthew uh, this morning. We're coming into the Gospel at a transition point. You may recall that uh, Matthew was inspired to structure his account of Jesus' public ministry uh, prior to his arrest in five sections of narrative alternated with five sections of teaching. And so our text today begins the third section of narrative, which is going to take up chapters 11 and 12 and lead into Matthew's third section of teaching by Jesus in chapter 13. Uh, so this is a good good point for us to uh, come into the gospel. You're also going to notice as, as you get into chapters 11 and 12 uh, that there's, there's a growing shift in people's uh, attitudes and thoughts toward Jesus. There's gonna, we're going to see a rising opposition to Jesus, uh, to both what he says and what he does. And so that's going to go through the rest of the gospel here. Uh, you may also recall that chapter 10 ended with Jesus telling his followers that they could expect persecution, that they could expect opposition, uh, that those who accept him as teacher and master uh, can, accept, uh, can expect disagreement and even persecution from those who reject him. And so again, we're going to see that theme as well as some of Jesus' followers struggle with that reality. So we're going to look this morning uh, specifically at the first six verses of chapter 11. Matthew, so let's hear this portion of God's word for us this day. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How important a role John the baptizer had in redemptive history. He shows up again in our text, but of course, this is not the first time we've seen him in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, we saw him even before he was conceived, mentioned, right? Uh, John the Baptist is, is one of only uh, two persons that were born to people beyond childbearing years in the Bible. Uh, anybody remember the other one? Is the other child that was born to aged parents who had given up hope of conceiving a child. Right, Isaac, laughter. And so we see an echo of that in the experience of Zachariah and Elizabeth as they're given the news that John is going to be born. And in fact, name him. They name him. He's one of just a handful of people who are named before they're born as well. So already even before he's born, we get the feeling this is going to be an important person in redemptive history. And that's underscored then 
when Zechariah, who has, he has been robbed of his speech because he disbelieved the message that uh, he would have a child, he's, he's been robbed of his speech all the time of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy, but he's, he's able to speak again once the child is born and they're at their, the circumcision and naming ceremony, and he's asked what his name is to be, and he writes his name is John in obedience to the angel. And as his mouth is opened, he's able to speak again. And what marvelous words come out of his mouth. It's the first words after he's been speechless for so long. This is just the conclusion of his prophetic word, which talks about John. I want you to be reminded of, of this per, the person of John before we look at what he says here. So he says of his child that's just been born, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give salvation, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so he grows up, as Luke tells us, and the end of chapter 1, he grew and became strong in spirit, a courageous young man. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance. And so uh, he comes then as this remarkable figure, a prophet out in the wilds, living on the land, a, a man's man in many ways, isn't he? speaking a fearless, fearless prophetic word. He, he doesn't let anybody intimidate him. Okay, not, not the religious authorities, not the political authorities. He, he speaks the truth forthrightly and is a man of incredible courage. So what's happened in our text? Well, he's been imprisoned. He's according to Josephus, in a fortress, one of Herod's fortresses, to the east of the Jordan, probably in a dungeon cell. Seems to have been imprisoned there for a year before he's, he's executed. And, and that takes a toll on him. Charles Spurgeon wrote of this passage, John was in prison. He did not make a good caged bird. He of the wilderness and the river, and his faith began to flag. Have you known a time when your faith began to flag? When there, there, was, there was a change in your circumstances that you simply did not expect, you did not see coming, and suddenly you found yourself, maybe not in a physical prison like, like John's in, but perhaps in an emotional prison, locked into some feelings that were really difficult for you to deal with. Uh, perhaps circumstances in terms of a job, income, a relationship with, within your family or among your friends. Something had happened that, that you didn't expect and, and something that did not seem to to fit into your understanding of the blessings that God has for his people. And your faith began to flag. You began to 
He began to, like, uh, like Spurgeon says of John here, ha have dark thoughts. Dark thoughts may come to the bravest when pent up in a narrow cell. Perhaps it's been a time of suffering or grief, and you felt locked in by that, and 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 begun to begin to succumb to those dire circumstances. In his poem, Harlem Langston Hughes expresses the personal cost that comes to people when their faith in future possibilities suddenly gives way to doubt that they'll ever be made real. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet. Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Imagine it does all those things, doesn't it? Depending on the time, depending on the circumstance. There may well have been times when John raged at being in those four, within those four walls, maybe pounded his fist on the wall sometimes having grown up outside in nature and living off the land. Uh, maybe he just sagged under the heavy load of hour after hour, day after day, week after week of confinement. Well, he, he began to be troubled by doubts. And right at the very heart of his calling, you notice. Remember, he had been called as the herald of Jesus Christ as the one to proclaim his coming. And it's right at that point that doubt seems to have arisen for him. Sometimes it's, it's, that, it's that point in your life, it's that part of your life that, it, that seems very central to who you are, where your identity is wrapped up. That's exactly the place where your faith seems to begin to waver, where you have doubts. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Now, we, we, we do want to make sure that we distinguish here between doubt and disbelief. John is not disbelieving. And, and, and I don't want you to equate doubt and unbelief in your mind, because Satan can use that to, to really put you in a bad place. If you think doubt is equated with unbelief, then you're going to start thinking of yourself as an unbeliever every time you have any doubts. And, and that's not the case. Os Guinness and others have pointed out that, that doubt is not disbelief. It, it's sort of like in between faith and disbelief. It's a believing, but having that believing a little uncertain, uh, shaken by events or, or by the thoughts in your mind. And, and so that's where John is. His, his faith is wavering. What do you do when your faith is wavering? Well, one thing you don't do is cover it up. Please don't cover up your doubts. Please don't hide your doubts. Uh, you may be prone to do that. I, I know as, as a young person, I, I was prone to cover up my doubts. I, I didn't see anybody else that seemed to be doubting around me. 
everybody else in the church looked real nice and they sat up straight and, and, and they seemed to have their act together. And when I started having doubts, I thought, well, you know, I must be strange. I, I must be in a class by myself here. And so I, I hid those doubts. Don't hide your doubts. That will only give them more power over you. Okay. Bring your doubts out into the light of day. And that's what John does, right? He, he doesn't just harbor his doubts there in the prison cell. He doesn't just keep that in. He, he does exactly what you need to do when you have doubts. When, he has de when you have doubts, you need to take them to God and his word. Okay, that's what John's doing. He's taking his doubts to Jesus. He, he, he's, he's really showing a lot of courage here, isn't he? B because he's expressing to Jesus his doubts about Jesus. Okay. You know, there, there might have been something in him that's saying, that's saying to him, you know, if you express your doubts to Jesus about Jesus, he, he's going to be mad at you. You say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You were there in my baptism. You saw the divine manifestation of the Holy Spirit come upon me. You heard the voice of the Father speaking. What's the matter with you? John, John takes his doubt to Jesus. Take your doubts about God to God. Take them to his word. Okay. Uh, I, I, I often encourage Students of mine, take your questions to Scripture, to God's Word. You don't need to be afraid. Somehow your question is going to be the one question in all of human history that breaks God's Word. Okay. Your doubt is not going to be, I mean, the collapse of God's truth. Take your doubts to God. Take them to His Word. Bring them out into the light of day. Take them to another believer. You know, find somebody older than you in the faith. And take, take your doubts to that person. In almost every case, you know, that person will graciously hear you out and help you to work through those doubts. So follow John's example. That's the one thing I want you to take away from this message. Follow John's example. Take your doubts to the Lord. And so that's what he does. Very honestly, very forthrightly. He can't go in person himself, of course, so he sends messengers. Are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? You, you notice how, how Matthew referred in verse 2 to Jesus as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. I think he's doing that on purpose here to, to call our attention to, to the depth of of uh, John's question here. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Do, don't you feel the pain in that? Do, do you feel John's heart breaking? Are you the one who is to come? I thought you were, and yet now I'm having doubts. Am I supposed to be looking for somebody else? Uh, th there, there's a there's a powerful emotion, I think, behind that question. Sometimes your doubts go right down to your very heart. And you're just aching inside. I think John is aching inside as he expresses this doubt. And, and he 
but he brings it to Jesus, and that's the most important thing to do. His doubt, of course, has arisen out of the what seems to him to be a disharmony between his circumstances and God's word and God's plan. Okay, and that's going to be the case with you probably. Doubts are going to arise when your present experience or circumstances somehow seems to be not lined up with what God's word has taught you so far. Okay. Uh, you remember John's message, that powerful message that he spoke. There is one coming and he is bringing the kingdom of God. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what did that mean for John? Well, that meant, well, it meant something like the Exodus deliverance only multiplied a hundred times. <laughs> it, it meant God coming to rescue oppressed people. Coming to, to, to speak to the downtrodden. You remember, it was often the downtrodden that heard John's message, wasn't it? It was the people of the in the lower parts of society that, that, that heard that message. And so, so the, John believed that God was rescuing people in need of salvation. And at the same time that he was bringing judgment upon those who oppressed them and all who opposed his will. Remember, he used that vivid image. He says, the axe is even now at the root of the tree. It's already cutting into the bark. And God is going to judge evil. And he's going to bring in his kingdom. And what's happened? This wicked king Herod, at the instigation of his perhaps even more wicked wife, has thrown John into prison. And in fact, he, he will be executed by beheading. It's no wonder he's doubting, don't you think? Where is the God of vengeance? Where is the God who judges evil? Where is the God who brings his kingdom on this earth? Your doubt is going to often arise by that disconnect between your circumstances and what you believe and who you believe God is and what he does. Hey, you see this other places in Scripture. We won't go through a whole lot of illustrations here, but you see it all over the place. Habakkuk, the questioning prophet, he, he looks at his circumstances and says, where are you, God? Don't you see what's happening? The oppression of the poor, the the hypocrisy, the false worship going on in Israel. He, he sees a disconnect between his circumstances, those circumstances in the, at least those who are outwardly called, the people of God. And, and so he's troubled by that. Over and over again, you see that happening. And, and that'll happen to you, perhaps on a more personal level. There'll seem to be a disconnect between what God says in Scripture, and your own experience. And, and so that's behind John's question as well. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look to another? Have I been mistaken in everything that I've been thinking? What's going on here?
And we've already pointed out that Jesus does not answer him with rebuke. Okay. Uh, Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, we have mercy on those who doubt because God is merciful to us when we doubt. And Jesus is merciful to Jesus. There's no direct word of rebuke here at all, is there? He just he just tells, sends two messages back to John. What's the first one? Very quickly. Verse 4. Go and tell John what you hear and see. So here's the first message. Beautiful message. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. We, we could, if we took time, we could go back and see, see examples of all those things in the Gospels. That he, so he's talking about something that actually happened, but more importantly, perhaps, he, he's also calling John's attention probably to Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 that prophesied that the anointed one would do these things. And so what's he doing here? We're we saying, John, God is at work here and now. Okay. God is not absent. Okay. Same message that God gives to back and others when they doubt. God is not absent. He's at work. And in fact, he's at work in an incredibly mighty way, John. I am indeed that one that Isaiah prophesied. And what I'm doing proves it. So he points John to the testimony of his works as an assurance. Uh, look for that. When, when you bring your doubts to God, when you bring your doubts to God's word, look at how he worked in his word and then apply that to your life. Okay, look for those ways in which God is at work in your life. And I believe he'll help you find those, or somebody can help you find them if you want. Uh, again, go to somebody else with your doubt and, and talk it through with them and, and let them help you to see, as Jesus is helping John to see here, God at work in this world. God is doing mighty things in people's lives in this, in this day and age. Don't let the world distract you with all their so-called news and all their celebrity focus. The really important things are happening are not in the news. They're not on on the major media. Okay, they're in the they're in the lives of his people, as he's doing marvelous things. I mean, if we had time, I I could tell you about marvelous things that God is doing that that I know of just in recent days. How he's sustaining and encouraging and working through his people's, people's lives and hearts. But Jesus adds something to that as well. Okay? Because he goes on to say, Blessed is the one who is not offended with me by me. That word blessed, of course, takes us back to the Beatitudes, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 5. There is a blessing... There is a blessing to be gained. Remember those wonderful beatitudes, those wonderful blessings that, God, that Jesus said are, are 
are available for God's people, for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for those who are humble and meek, for those, well, remember it culminated with those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Even in the most terrible of circumstances, there is a blessing to be gained. And so he says there's a blessing here, John. Don't miss this blessing. You see, John's doubts can be the means to a deeper faith, a deeper experience of God. I, I firmly believe that after this experience, John's faith was stronger than it was before. And your faith can be made stronger as you work through the doubts that circumstances throw at you. So be encouraged that you will come out on the other side of that doubt stronger in your faith. Habakkuk comes out of his experience of questioning God with an incredible faith. He basically ends his, his, his book saying, I don't care if the economy totally collapses and we're left with not even enough bread to eat. I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. <laughs> he came out of that experience stronger. And Jesus is saying to John, you can come out of this stronger. There's a blessing for you. Don't miss it. There's a blessing for those who are not offended by me. He uses an interesting word there. The Greek word for offended here is the word that we get scandal from. And it literally means to trip over something. It's used of that stick that an animal trips over that traps them, or a stone that somebody trips over. And so, in effect, Jesus is saying that there's a blessing for those who don't trip over me, who aren't scandalized by me. Why on earth would you trip over Jesus? Why on earth would you be scandalized by Jesus? Well, Paul uses the same image in, in his writing. He says people are going to be scandalized by the cross of Christ. Why are they scandalized? Why do they trip over the cross of Christ? Why, why, did, why did people... Why did people trip over Jesus in his earthly ministry? Well, it was, it's because he came in apparent weakness. He, he, his life ended in an apparent defeat. And so, so Paul says to the Corinthians, for instance, that the cross of Christ is a scandal to the Jews. And it's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to the Gentiles. People are offended by the cross of Christ. How can that, how can that be good news? We're offended by the cross in part because we see our sin there. To really see the cross is to see your sin and its effects. Because it is your sin that Jesus is bearing on the cross. Your sin that he suffered for. And that scandalizes some people. They don't want to believe that. They don't want to think their sin's that serious. 
they, they, they think that they don't need a savior, they just need a little help. <laughs> they, they, they don't need a new heart, they just need some good advice. They're scandalized by the cross. Jesus says, don't be offended by me, John. Don't be offended by me. And of course, implicit in that is following Jesus to the cross, isn't it? How many times did he say, if you want to be my follower, pick up your cross and follow me. I'm going to a crucifixion, he's saying. If you're going to follow me, you're going to a crucifixion. You're going to die to yourself. You're going to see your sin nature die on the cross. And you're going to say with me, as Paul says, Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Don't be offended by me, Jesus is saying. There's a blessing to be gained. And of course, that's an incredible blessing, isn't it? That blessing of seeing your sin, sin atoned for in Jesus. That blessing of receiving the forgiveness that he bought at such great price. And the blessing of being clothed in his righteousness. And having the promise of eternal life with him. That then becomes the power, the wisdom, to get you through that time of testing. Do you catch that? But by embracing the gospel, by being strengthened in your faith, in the one who made atonement for you, and the one who caused you, to lay down your life in obedience to him, you gain the ability to persevere through that trial. As I said before, John, I believe John comes out stronger on the other side of this, and you can come out stronger on the other side of this as you rely on Christ. Remember, Paul applies this to himself. He says, you know, I want you to know... Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians, I, I, I want you to know that, that we were in a hard place. We were really at our wit's end. And he said, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We had almost given up hope, but we realized that God was wanting us to set our hope on him. And so he goes on to say later in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, 
but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. As you bring your doubts to God, as you hear his assurance that he's working in all things for his glory and your good, even in those circumstances that seem so bad, you gain a strength and a power to persevere. That, that's the name of the game in the Christian life, remember. It's all about perseverance. The Christian life is not a, not a, a quick race. It's a lifelong marathon. But God sustains us and encourages us. Take your doubts to him and find them answered in Jesus. That's really what he's doing in the end for John, isn't it? He's saying, John, keep your eyes on me. Okay. Put your trust in me. Don't be offended with me. And I will see you through. That's his promise to every believer, all those who trust him, that he will enable us to persevere through faith in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, all of us have uh, trials at times. There are periods in which we are, we are prone to doubts. I pray that you, would, that you would help us to follow John's example. pray that you would Help us to follow the admonition of, of Jude and to, to show mercy to one another when we doubt, to encourage one another, to seek to build one another up. And may we all keep our, our eyes uh, focused upon you. Uh, may we see in your life and death and resurrection uh, the hope of glory that you've extended to us as your people and be encouraged then to persevere in faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.